messages. Um, well, topical messages aren't bad. Uh, obviously, we do them. And as long as they're faithful to the, to, the, to the text of Scripture, and I think the Lord calls us, even as pastors, to sort of assimilate those truths together into, into helpful series. But why do we go through books of the Bible? Well, I want to answer that question just real quick, maybe from a different angle. Um, we've learned this summer that God inspired the Scriptures, right? Meaning they came from God. And typically when we think about inspiration, we think, okay, God gave us these words, you know, in our Bibles. And so they are His words, and they are. But God also inspired the way they came to us, right? So God's over that process too. Um, in other words, God didn't just give us... Uh, a topical book, you know, arranged for Christian living. Meaning, you know, start in the A's and work out. You know, and it, he didn't do that. Or he didn't give us the scriptures in a systematic theology. He gave us the scriptures in what I think would be better coined as an anthology. An anthology. How many of you are taking English this semester in some form? What? Two of you? Oh, that pains me. Uh, more of you need to take English courses, okay? So, an anthology uh, is just a collection of texts. And this is a God-inspired anthology. We have a collection of texts from God. And he made no mistakes in how he gave us those texts. And so we want to make sure that as we study Scripture, we're studying them as God has given them to us in these texts. And we're asking the question about what the author of those texts intended whenever he wrote that work, right? Does that make sense? So not only did God inspire the words, he inspired the author. He worked through that author's intention to write. If it's Paul, he's writing a letter. If it's Isaiah, he's writing a prophecy. But it's for purpose, right? And so that author of scripture has a purpose, has an intention, and all of that is God-inspired, and he gave it to us as the church. And so when we handle the word with each other, we want to go through it, as our bread and butter kind of through the way that the, the Lord has given us those texts. So, that also helps us keep our topical messages on point, right? So, as we're, as we're studying the scriptures exegetically, is it kind of a word that we use? Or, or, you know, as we work through books of the Bible, that, that helps us get the right categories for even our topics that we want to address. And so, really, um, working through books of the Bible is one way to do that. So, that's the intro to the intro, Okay. That's why we do. That's why we do exposition. That's why we're working through the Book of Acts in college ministry. Now, I have a confession to make. This whole summer, I've been doing a topical study in uh, bibliology, and I haven't even touched the Book of Acts. Okay, and so last week I had to get myself back in the groove. Uh, and so I don't know if you've ever been studying a book of the Bible and then stopped for a little while and then tried to get back into it. Anybody done that? Yep. So you know what I'm talking about. There's the uh, there's the cobwebs that kind of have to get swept away. And uh, some of you guys are like, we studied Acts last semester. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Hopefully nobody said that. Uh, so when I resumed my study, uh, I, it took me a solid day. I'm talking like probably six hours of study time just to reorient and start to feel comfortable with the book again. And uh, I had to find my place, kind of remember the context and some of the key themes and what we had learned. And, I, and I'm the teacher, right? And so I had, to, I had to kind of come through that process. So I think it would be pretty cruel of me to just drop back into Acts 13, right where we left off, 
at full throttle and uh, just expect you guys to kind of catch up. I mean, you're probably smarter than I am, but uh, that's a task. And plus, we have a few people that weren't with us last year that are new, that are joining our church. And so what I want us to do this morning is a little warm-up jog, okay? I want anybody to pull their hamstrings as we get into Acts 13 next week. Um, I want us to get reacquainted with the big picture of Acts before we dive into the details um, of Acts 13. So, the way we're going to approach this today is just, I want us to look at four key statements about the book of Acts. Alright, four key statements about the book of Acts. These are my statements about the book of Acts, not... We're not looking at particular scriptures, but it's my attempt to be faithful to what Luke is trying to do with the book of Acts. And so, or, or just four, four statements to kind of help us orient back to, to our study here. And it's super encouraging, was, was very helpful for my own heart. And, uh, and these statements will kind of help us get our bearings um, as we get back into the study next week. So we're going to be all over. So that's, that's going to be a caveat, so... Kind of get your fingers warmed up. All right, so we're going to turn to some different places in Scripture and look at, look at I think, these, these statements that will be helpful for us. All right, right out of the gate. The book of Acts, first statement, continues the Gospel of Luke. It continues the story of the Gospel of Luke. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Acts 1, 1. Acts continues the Gospel of Luke. It continues the same story. Acts 1.1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so he goes on to really introduce the book of Acts. But right out of the gate, what does he say? There was a former account. There was a first book. There was something that came before this one. And so, as we know, the author is Luke, the guy that accompanied Paul, and he also penned the Gospel of Luke. And so, that's our number one indicator that that's what he's talking about. This Acts, in other words, isn't just the continuation of all four Gospels, even though it's a big picture, it is. It's the history of the church. But in particular, it's the continuation of the story of one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke. That's what's intended by the author. See that? So flip back over to, uh, to Luke chapter 1. So we got a little two-part, two-part, you know, two-volume series here within our anthology of Scripture. And this is the prologue, if you will, to both books. Just like a prologue would be if there's a two-part Two-part series, and the, you know, part one, you got, you've got a prologue to both books, and that's sort of the idea here, is that it, it really, it's, a, it's the beginning of Luke, but it governs all of Luke and Acts. And so just look, look, at, look, uh, look with me here. Inasmuch as have, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, okay, here's his rationale, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you, here's the reason, that you may have certainty 
concerning the things which you've been taught. So right out of the gate, you know, when we look at Acts 1, it tells us there was a former book. And now when we go to Luke 1, it says, okay, here's why I'm writing this entire, this two-part series. And so, why is that important to know? Well, as we saw last semester, there were many themes that Luke began in the gospel that we saw fulfilled in the book of Acts, or on their way to fulfillment. I'll give you one specific theme about generosity and sacrificial giving. So Jesus, in his teaching, said to sell all that you have, give your proceeds to the poor, and follow me. Right? In the book of Acts, we see that applied in the local church. as they Some of them sold their property. Some of them gave generously. But the principle, as we see this fleshed out in the church, is generosity among the church to one another as they care for each other. And so, so many things and more are like that when we recognize that Luke is the first part and Acts is the second part. So that's really, really important um, to you and I, just even as we approach this study. And it's written to this guy named Theophilus. And so who is he? He was probably a high-level Roman official. I say probably because we don't know for sure. We're just working off of his name and his title here. The most excellent Theophilus. And he may have even had something to do with Paul's imprisonment in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. So he may have been an influential guy in that area. We know he was a believer, at least a professing believer, but we know that he was wavering in his faith. Okay? He wasn't completely sure about everything that was happening. Like, is this really the fulfillment of the, of, of the Old Testament of what, of what God said he was going to do? In particular because Jesus is gone and his followers are persecuted. So if Jesus really is the, the Messiah, the King of the world, just like the Gospel of Luke says he is, why are his followers persecuted? Why are they despised in the world? Why are the Jewish people at large forsaking Christ, their Messiah? So those are some key questions that really upset the, the early church, or, or I shouldn't say upset, but just caused some doubts maybe amongst the early church that I think Luke is specifically writing to address in Luke and Acts. But we're not the early church. We're the much later church. Um, and so, but we still have questions, don't we, about the big picture of Scripture. We have questions about where we fit, what our place is, what the mission is, what should we, should we should be about, even to our daily lives. And so the book of Acts just really unearths and helps us. It unearths idolatry. It unearths things that we're committed to and passionate about that may not be exactly what the Lord intends. And so it unearths those things and helps us to see the beauty of Christ's mission, His exalted status, and what we need to be about while we're here. And so, all that to say, Luke and Acts are written together, and they're written for this guy named Theophilus, to, in particular, verse verse 4 here, that he may have certainty, assurance, confidence in the things he's been taught. That means that you and I, as we study Acts, and we look at each story, it should build our confidence in God's plan, who God is for us, to us. And so that's, that's what we are aiming at. That's what we saw all last semester. And so, that leads us to our second key statement. So not only does it continue the Gospel of Luke, which is important to know, but it concerns the fulfillment of Scripture. The book of Acts concerns the fulfillment of Scripture. Look back in verse 1 of chapter Luke, of Luke chapter 1. 
He says, as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been, what's the next word? Accomplished. Anybody else have anything different? Just accomplished? Okay. The word could be translated fulfilled, um, which I think is probably a better, it kind of gets at the idea a little bit better here. So it's, it's an account, it's a narrative, okay? It's a story of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us. That's what the Gospel of Luke and his volume 2, the book of Acts, is. It's all about fulfillment. Okay, so fulfillment of what? That's our next question. It's fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, right? So, Luke and Acts are about fulfillment. And we can think of it like this. Not only is Acts a continuation of Luke, but Luke-Acts is a continuation of the Old Testament story. It's bring, he's bringing it, showing its fulfillment, showing how it's brought to fulfillment. So, in large part, Luke is very concerned with our big picture. He's very concerned with us seeing how God is fully at work and how it's, he is fulfilling what he's intended since creation. That's pretty staggering, okay? Uh, and pretty ambitious for, uh, for Luke, and he does a masterful job, obviously inspired by the Spirit. But for us to get our bearings and really feel the weight of this, the, how, it, how it fulfills Scripture, what I want us to do just really quickly is give a thumbnail sketch of the storyline of the Old Testament. And I'm only going to highlight, I think, one, one little theme through this story, but I want you to listen for it, okay? So in the beginning, God creates everything, right? The entire cosmos in Genesis 1 and 2. And He gives the purpose of mankind... To be fruitful and multiply and to take dominion over the, over the earth. So, if we were to step back and look at Genesis 1, what we would see is that God's purpose for mankind is to establish His kingdom on earth through the obedience of humanity. Or we could say, through the obedience of a faithful son. God's purpose is to establish His kingdom. So, the garden was sort of His temple area. But the rest of the earth was uncultivated. And so through the obedience of Adam and Eve, they were to bring God's glory as they multiplied children and the image of God grew. And as they were faithfully obedient to Him in this world and and was really to extend God's blessing to all of the world. That was their role. A lot more we could say about that. And so we could say Adam's role was to secure God's blessing on earth. And avoiding the curses that were laid out in Genesis 2. About if you eat this, you will surely die. And so we know that there was this pathway to to knowledge that was forbidden. uh, And that Satan hijacked that through the serpent. And there was a failure of Adam and Eve through distrust and disobedience in the garden. So they failed to obey their king. And they failed to be his image bearers to the earth. And so sin and covenant curses and eventual death ensued upon humanity. Blindness. Idolatry. And that's characterized humanity ever since. But in Genesis 3, there's a promise that God makes to restore it all. Okay? And He he makes this promise of restoration that it will happen through the seed of this woman, Eve. Through her offspring, through her, her line, restoration will come. But it won't come without opposition. He says, the seed of the serpent 
are going to make war against the seed of the woman. But eventually, you know, he's the, the serpent's going to bite his heel, he's going to crush his head. And so there's going to be a, a tremendous battle for this, for this restoration. And it's going to ultimately end with the seed of the woman crushing the, the head of the serpent. All the way back in Genesis 3. And so somehow God's going to use this woman's line to reverse the curses and bring blessing back to God's creation as he intended it. And that was the goal of God's creation. And so the woman's line continues, but the seed of the serpent, they fill the earth with wickedness and violence. Think Genesis 6. Noah, line of the woman, part of the woman, faithful Noah, is used to preserve the earth. And so notice God's theme of continuing to use a faithful son to secure and fulfill his blessing to the earth. But we know that Noah wasn't ultimately faithful, right? Right after the flood, right after God makes a new start with Noah, his children and Noah himself clearly exhibit uh, sin. And they, they fall. It's a, another fall happens in, in the vineyard. And just sin multiplies again. And so old, Noah isn't ultimately faithful. Even his own children are corrupted by the serpent. Eventually, God comes to one of Noah's descendants, same line, to Abram. And then God clarifies that the promise in Genesis 3, uh, and he shows that this promise is going to come through this family of Abraham. This promise to, to reverse the curse, to bring blessing, not just to the family of Abraham, but through Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, right? Remember that from the Abrahamic covenant? And so God's going to reverse this curse through this family, and bring blessing again to the nations. And we know who Abraham's family becomes, right? The nation of Israel. God saves them from Egypt. He calls the entire nation now his son. Okay, hear the theme. After rescuing them, he makes a covenant with them because he intends to use them to bring blessing to the nations. As God's faithful sons... What he intends, this nation it would prosper. God would bless their socks off, in other words. And the nations would hear about the covenant God of Israel, the one true God, and they would see him and see how he relates with humanity through Israel, and they would come to know him. And that was the goal. Even to where Israel was placed, they were placed in strategically in the center of the earth of that time. Through one of the main trade routes of, of the major powers of their day. And so everybody would come through there intended to see how God relates to his people and how God could relate to them as the nations. But David himself, like Adam before him, um, well, actually, I'm sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. We know that Israel was faithful or unfaithful in this task. They were very unfaithful. So almost from the very beginning. And so, the problem, or one of the problems, was that they didn't have any leadership. After Moses died and Joshua went off the scene, the judges were kind of hit or miss. And so the problem was that they didn't have a king that could lead them in obedience to Yahweh. And so God raised up a faithful king named David. He also called David his son, right? It was his son. And so son was a, a, another designation here, the same theme. And so the God intends them, these kings, to bring blessing to the nations as they lead the nation in obedience to Yahweh. 
As they are obedient, the nation would prosper and the, the nations would hear about the Lord. So think about Queen of Sheba, right? That's sort of the, the highlight of the period of the monarchy in Israel. It's when Solomon is obedient and it's just the wisdom of Solomon, really the wisdom of the Lord, is just spreading throughout the entire known region. He's king over, really exalted over all the kingdoms of the earth, it says. And people are hearing about it. But Solomon falls, doesn't he? He breaks everything that Deuteronomy 17 laid out, and the kingdom ultimately divides, and um, they're led into exile. The people are led into exile. And by the end of that period, they've, they've become so, just as wicked as the, as the Canaanites that they dispossessed when they came in under Joshua. And obviously that's super discouraging. Well, super discouraging for these people. And so they began to wonder, are things over? Is the story done? But God sent them prophets who predicted that a restoration would happen. Okay? God made these promises in the beginning and He's committed to them. And He's saying a restoration will happen. And God would bring a new David. He would accomplish a new exodus. He would cut a new covenant, unlike the old. And He would give the people His own spirit to make them obedient. In other words, He would renew the nation and make them what they could not be themselves. And so Israel would be used, they would be renewed and used by God, to bring blessing to the nations just like they were intended to do. The nations would come to know God's forgiveness, and this would ultimately result in a new creation. Restoring God's goal the way it was intended and greater in the garden. And so that's a brief sketch. All that's Old Testament theology, okay? And that is breaking into this gospel of Luke as we come in. These are the messianic expectations that are here. That a David is going to be raised up. And from the first verses of the gospel of Luke, it trumpets this. Luke picks up where the Old Testament story left off. And he says he's writing about things that have been fulfilled. And you feel that now, right? And you're thinking, okay... That's what he's talking about. Jesus inaugurates this last phase of the story of redemption. And Luke details this out in the gospel and then subsequently in the life of the church in Acts. And so, just suffice it to say, Jesus came and his life proved that he was the Messiah. He proved it. It was unmistakable. Fulfilled so many prophecies of scripture about what the Messiah would be. His death and resurrection opened the door to the new covenant for us in our place as the covenant head, right? The new Adam who restored, is going to bring creation back to its intended order, right? And so we're united by faith in Him through His death and resurrection. We're brought, swept up kind of into this new people of God that He's he's creating. And so all of this, His life, His death, His resurrection is the fulfillment of Scripture. Turn over to Luke 24. I just want you to see this really quick. Luke 24, after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he visits his disciples multiple times. And you'll notice in Luke 24, if you read the whole chapter, you'll notice this theme of Jesus explaining how the scriptures refer to him. Right? And so I just want to draw your attention to one of them. Look in verse 44. 
Jesus is with them, with his disciples and his apostles, and he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Namely, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So, okay, got it. Summary of the Gospel of Luke, right? The Christ should suffer, rise from the dead. And, verse 47, so it is written that that should happen, but it's also written that this should happen. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Cue the book of Acts, right? So that is the idea here, that this gospel and the book of Acts are all about the fulfillment of Scripture. Do you see that? And the continuation of the story. In other words, the fulfillment doesn't end with Jesus' death and resurrection. The fulfillment continues as the gospel goes out, churches are planted, and Gentiles are saved. That is bringing about the fulfillment of all of these promises. And so, as you just get into the book of Acts, it is staggering how many times scriptures are referenced as fulfilled. Just referenced. We're not talking about the subtle illusions that happen all over the place. We're just talking about direct references. The very first words out of Peter's mouth are these. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Peter's first sermon, everybody's going crazy about the spirit that happened at Pentecost. They're like, oh, these guys are drunk. Oh, yeah, you know, they're, and Peter's like, no, this is Joel 2. Right? And then like, whoa, whoa, resurrected from the dead? What's what's all that about? No, that's Psalm 16. Oh, you're saying he's ascended into heaven at God's right hand? Yeah, 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 that's Psalm 110. Okay? And so, from the beginning of the gospel, of the book of Acts, it is all about the fulfillment of Scripture. And it pervades the entire thing. So why am I making such a big deal of that? Because when we gather as God's bride, we're fulfilling God's intention from the garden. We're not at its final fulfillment. (laughs) Praise the Lord. But we are on the way to fulfilling that. And that can be worked out in so many ways as we love each other, as we participate in the life of the Spirit, as we hear Christ's teaching, as we just learn to obey Him more. This is God's goal, and it brings joy and blessing to the earth through that. And so we are like little outposts of this kingdom of God that God is working out here. And I just want you to see that the book of Acts is all about the fulfillment. It, it raises the, the playing field here. It, 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 it heightens what we're about. It's not just about coming to church. Oh, I should come to church. It's like, do you understand what you're participating in? And so, man, it's beautiful. And so we, we looked at that last week or last year. And uh, we're going to continue to look at that again this year. So that's our second key statement. I want you to see that it concerns the fulfillment of Scripture. Number three, the book of Acts, uh, the book of Acts charts an unstoppable mission. The book of Acts charts an unstoppable mission here. So if you're not there, turn over to Acts 1. Acts chapter 1. So really, 
Acts, you could sort of summarize it as the exalted Christ who is enthroned in heaven as king over all nations. He's poured out his spirit on his followers. And now the followers are taking this message of forgiveness to first the Jews and then out from them to the nations. Right? First the Jews and out from them to the nations. And that's really what the mission is. It's not to win converts necessarily, but it's just to proclaim this message of redemption. That it's here in Christ and the, the doors of the kingdom are open if you avail yourself of Christ and submit to Him as King. Not to your idols, not to Judaism, but to Christ. He's the fulfillment. And so, that's the mission of the book of Acts. And that's really the, the, the skeletal structure of this book. And so if you let your eyes fall down to verse 6 here, this is again kind of the intro to the book of Acts. He says, so when the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Here, here in this, the, the final fulfillment, or kind of further than we are right now. You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the season that the Father's fixed by his own authority. Okay, so essentially not yet, okay? Or not in the way that you think. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Notice this. In Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria. And to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, they were looking on. He's lifted up. cloud lifted him out of their sight. He ascended into heaven. That's the idea. But in between this, this question about the kingdom and then about his ascension is the, the purpose statement, really, of the book. And it's the skeletal structure. That's what Luke is going to work work off of, and he's going to show us the fulfillment of this. So, um, so first the gospel goes to Jerusalem. It starts powerfully uh, in the in the capital city of the nation. Thousands of Jews are converted. Thousands of them. And so, at least in part, a renewal of the nation of Israel is beginning. Right. Thousands of Jews are being converted to Christ in Jerusalem. And that's Luke is so clear about that to show us how many are coming to, to know Christ. But it's not all happiness. Opposition starts escalating in Jerusalem. Religious leadership turns against the church, turns against these Messianic converts. They start persecuting them. And then there's a summary statement in, in Acts chapter 6. So look over in Acts 6, verse 7. So even though there's persecution... The gospel still is moving forward. It says in, in chapter 6, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So sort of summarize the first section in, of gospel in Jerusalem. It's doing great. Persecution's happening, but that's okay. Because the gospel is multiplying in Jerusalem. Well, eventually, this persecution climaxes in, in this ministry of Stephen. Stephen preaches to the Jews, they kill him. And that's sort of the climax of the, of the Jerusalem section of persecution. But that persecution then leads to the scattering of believers to guess where? Judea and Samaria, the region outside of Jerusalem. Think the whole land of Israel, both Judea and Samaria. So the persecution actually ends up promoting the gospel and promoting the plan. So they're spread out and takes the gospel uh, to these two regions of Judea and Samaria. 
In other words, the gospel goes abroad to the whole land of Israel and the, the word creates converts through, the, through these Jews that are being faithful to, to share the gospel. And it even brings unity with the Samaritans. Now, that's a big deal because the Samaritans were the previous descendants of the northern tribe of Israel, or the northern tribes. And you know, if you know your history, they split. There was a lot of hostility there. They intermarried when they were restored. And so it was just a mess, okay? And they hated each other. But the gospel brought unity to those two groups and, I would argue, restored Israel, brought together the division that was that the, that the prophet said would happen in the Old Covenant, that the northern and southern tribes would come back together again under one Messiah. Big deal, okay? So you see where this is going. Look in uh, chapter 9, verse 31. So this section is then summarized. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, i.e. the whole land, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So now, guess what we're poised for? The gospel to the nations, right? The gospel to the nations. Jerusalem has been evangelized. Thousands of converts were made. The whole land of Israel has been evangelized. Churches were planted. So now, the stage is set for the evangelization of the Gentiles. Israel is now going to be a light to the nations. And so that happens, and starting in chapter 11, uh, or starting in chapter 10, with the conversion of Cornelius, and that just launches out into the, to the rest of the book. And that's where we left off last year, so with, the, with its ministry to, to Antioch. And we'll pick back up there. And so, one of the reasons I, I, I bring this, this theme up, just real quick, is because I think it's important for us to see it, because it gives us a good theology of suffering. A good theology of suffering, meaning that God's plan isn't stopped by human opposition. Because we're so tempted to be surprised by that, we're so tempted to be discouraged by that, we're so tempted to just walk away from the faith because of the persecution, but that's part of God's plan. And we see that again and again and again in Acts, and we see that the gospel cannot be stopped because Christ is enthroned in heaven. So, super important. The book of Acts charts an unstoppable mission... Sorry. That's where. That's the skeletal structure of the book of Acts. And finally, just I'll be real brief here. The, gospel, the, the book of Acts describes the new covenant community um, of the church. The book of Acts describes the new covenant community, which is the church. So as you work through Acts, as you read through Acts, what you'll notice is there'll be these periods where the story is kind of advancing... And then it's like Luke presses the pause button. And you're like, what? What's going on? And then he starts talking about the church and what the church looks like, what the church does, what, how the church behaves. And you're like, okay, there's these like pause buttons throughout the, throughout the book of Acts. And so Luke is really wanting us to get this flavor of what the church is like. And I'm saying, I'm calling this church the New Covenant community because really we're the people of the New Covenant, Right? And so first it was Israel as they're being renewed, and now it extends to the Gentiles. And we're part of this beautiful new covenant that God predicted all the way back in the prophets. And that's called the church, or the the gathering, the ecclesia. And so, I'll just give you a couple of of designations, I won't even talk about them really, but uh, a way that the, the Acts describes the church. Describes the church as forgiven sinners. 
It's forgiven sinners. And you and I, we know that very well. Um, the people that murdered Jesus were the first recipients of the gospel and the first converts. And so from the very beginning, it's very clear that Luke intends us to realize it is sinful people who experience forgiveness. Um, and so if you don't admit that, you can't experience forgiveness. And so we are forgiven sinners. Fundamentally, that is our identity. And that's what creates the devotion to the king, right? Because he releases your debts totally by his own grace. So forgiven sinners right out of the gate. We're also persecuted saints. The world hated Christ. They killed him. And now we're going to see, not only do the Jews hate Christ, or a large, more, a large portion of them that turn on, their, turn on their brothers in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but the Jews unify with the Gentiles and end up persecuting the church. And so, we shouldn't be caught off guard by that. Acts wants us to see very clearly that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. That's how we get there, because it's the road that Christ took. And that doesn't stop the plan. We're persecuted saints, but we're saints. We're set apart by Christ, loved by Him, preserved by Him. Third, we're kingdom citizens. We're kingdom citizens, meaning we belong to the kingdom that's coming when Christ comes back. That's our bloodline. That's our inheritance. And it looks crazy to the world because we're typically, in most countries, the poorest the most downcast, the most persecuted, uh, the most rejected in society. And so it looks absolutely crazy that we are actually going to inherit the kingdom. We're going to inherit the world. Um, but that's what the book of Acts tells us. Because Christ is our king. And so the persecution's worth it because the kingdom is coming. And then finally, we are those that have been transformed by the spirit that was promised to us and has been poured out among us. Not perfect transformation. That awaits the fullness of the kingdom that's coming. But our lives should be different. And if they're not, you don't know Christ. Okay? I know it's a blanket statement. But we should be progressively experiencing obedience to Christ. Now that can be slow or it can be fast. (laughs) But there should be fruit. The Spirit bears fruit in those whom He has set apart. And so that's what we're after. It's totally by His grace. And so we want to be participating in that now as a college ministry. And Acts shows us that very clearly. So that's just a bird's eye view, really, of the book of Acts setting us up then for Acts 13 that we're going to be in next week. So just please read Acts 13. Uh, Read it a couple of times. Write down your questions. Write down your thoughts. And if I don't cover them, please come talk to me. And let's let's start working through this, this book of Acts. Together and uh, and really on this last point, let's just be this covenant community that the Lord has has held out for us here in the in the Book of Acts. And so that's our goal as we commence our study. Let's pray.